0: Warning, this episode contains facts and mental images that some younger listeners may find disturbing. Open casket funerals, at best, are mildly uncomfortable, at least for me. That's not to say I don't understand their purpose. They can help provide a sense of closure for any loved ones or friends, a way to say your last goodbyes and begin the healing process. Now sometimes the act of displaying a body can stretch far beyond a two or three day funeral home viewing. All around the globe, former world leaders and various people of importance have had their remains preserved so that loyal followers and interested people can pay their respects for years after they've passed on. In 1924, shortly after his death, Vladimir Lenin's body was taken to the Red Square for display. After Joseph Stalin's death in 1953, they wheeled his body right next to Lenin's, and they stayed side-by-side in the Lenin Mausoleum for eight years. He was then moved to the neighboring Kremlin Wall Necropolis. Lenin's body is still on display today, nearly 100 years later. Scientists from the Soviet Union sort of led the way in the art of embalming, so much so that other countries have turned to them for advice and help with their own embalming endeavors. One country that has gone to Russia for help is North Korea. When Kim Jong Il died in 2011, North Korean officials got on the phone with Russian scientists and embalming specialists and invited them over. The former leader's body is, as we speak, set up in the same room as his father, Kim Il Sung, a steady stream of tourists passing by and taking pictures, no doubt. Vietnam also relies on the folks from the Lenin Lab, as they're known. At the time of President Ho Chi Minh's life-ending heart attack in 1969, the Vietnam War was still taking place. American planes were bombing North Vietnam, which made it hard for the embalming specialists to get there. The Soviet Union actually airlifted chemicals and equipment to a cave just outside of Hanoi. Much like Tony Stark in the first Iron Man movie, the Soviet experts turned the cave into a sterile laboratory the methods used for this special embalming take several months and every two years or so they are re-embalmed bodies are reportedly submerged in separate solutions of glycerol solution baths formaldehyde potassium acetate alcohol hydrogen peroxide acetic acid solution and acetic sodium chairman mao zedong of china wished to be cremated his wife on the other hand said nope and now his body can be viewed for four hours a day six days a week in his mausoleum at the southern end of Beijing's Tiananmen Square. 18th century British philosopher Jeremy Bentham. Tutankhamen, the child king of ancient Egypt. The Inca Ice Maiden. Those are all examples of bodies that are painstakingly cared for and have been for decades. Former President Hugo Chavez had wanted to be displayed like some of his peers, but due to Venezuelan heat and a lack of preparation, it couldn't be done. You may be asking yourself if this episode is just about dead bodies. Yes. But it's about the long, strange trip of one body in particular. Buckle up, we're going for a ride. Episode 12, The Tale of Elmer McCurdy Elmer J. McCurdy was born on New Year's Day, 1880, in Washington, Maine. His mother, Sadie McCurdy, was just 17 years old at the time and unmarried. Sadie's brother George wanted to save her from the shame of raising an illegitimate child, so he and his wife Helen adopted the boy. The identity of the father was never revealed, but was assumed to be Sadie's cousin, a classy fellow by the name of Charles Smith. When Elmer was just 10, the man he thought was his father, George McCurdy, died of tuberculosis. Helen, who he thought to be his mom, and Sadie, his actual mom, who was now 27, moved with Elmer to Bangor, Maine. At some point, Sadie told her son that she was in fact his real mom, then added in the real kicker of not knowing who his father was. Understandably, the news rocked young Elmer's world, and he quickly turned into a resentful, rebellious ruffian. As soon as he became a teenager, he started drinking heavily. Once he started, he'd never be able to give it up. Elmer left his mom and aunt to go live with his grandfather. That's where he became an apprentice plumber. He was doing all right for himself until around 1898, when he lost his job, likely due to his drinking. Two years later, in August of 1900, his mother died of a ruptured ulcer. She was only 37. In September, less than a month later, his grandfather died of Bright's disease. Bright's disease is an old-timey name for kidney disease. After his grandfather died, McCurdy left Maine and began roaming the eastern states, working odd jobs as a miner and plumber. Alcohol played a factor in his ability to keep jobs. He made a brief stop in Cherryville, Kansas, before moving to the city of Iola in 1905. Iola, Kansas, is where he would be arrested for the first time for public intoxication. He relocated to Webb City, Missouri for a brief stint before returning to Kansas to join the Army. In 1907, Elmer McCurdy was assigned to Fort Leavenworth. During his time at Leavenworth, he was a machine gun operator and received training in the use of nitroglycerin for demolition purposes. Nitroglycerin and his limited training in it is important, and we'll factor into the story again in just a moment. He was honorably discharged on November 7, 1910. McCurdy, now thirty years old, made his way to St. Joseph, Kansas, where he met up with a friend he'd made in the Army. Twelve days after his discharge, he and that friend were arrested for possession of burglary paraphernalia. This paraphernalia included chisels, hacksaws, funnels for both nitroglycerin and gunpowder, as well as money sacks. Elmer told the judge that the tools were not for theft purposes, but were all part of an invention that he and his friend were working on for a foot-operated machine gun. The jury bought the story, and in January of 1911, he and his friend were found not guilty. Spoiler alert, before the end of 1911, Elmer McCurdy will be dead. In March of 1911, Elmer moved again, this time to Lenape, Oklahoma. He hatched a plan that would put his limited training in nitroglycerin handling to the test. Somehow, he conned three men into joining his gang, and together, they decided that they would rob the Iron Mountain, Missouri-Pacific train. McCurdy had heard a rumor that one of the train's cars contained a safe with $4,000 in it. That's roughly $125,000 today. As you see in old Western movies, the men successfully stopped the train and located the safe. The rumors were true, and Elmer McCurdy looked like a mastermind criminal to his crew, at least for a minute or two. He confidently stood in front of the safe and placed some nitroglycerin on the door. Then he added a little more, and then a little more. He lit the powder, and a moment later, the nitroglycerin worked too well. The safe, along with most of the money, was destroyed. The crew was able to scrape up just over $400 worth of silver coins, most of which were melted and fused together. They rode off with just over 10% of the possible haul. In September of that year, a persistent McCurdy and two other men robbed the Citizens Bank in Chautauqua, Kansas. The smaller crew spent at least 120 minutes breaking through the bank's wall with a hammer. It was nitroglycerin time again. He covered the door of the bank's outer vault and lit the fuse. He'd learned what the proper amount of nitroglycerin was by now. I'm just kidding. No, he didn't. The blast blew the vault door off its hinges and straight through the bank, pulverizing the interior but doing nothing to the safe inside the vault. He then tried to blow the safe door open with more nitroglycerin but couldn't get the fuse lit. A member of the crew, who had been acting as the lookout man, got scared and ran away. McCurdy and the other guy stole roughly $150 in coins that happened to be in a tray just outside the safe, and then they ran off. That evening, he and his accomplice hopped a train and then split up near the Kansas border. Old Elmer made his way to the ranch of a friend in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. He hung out in Rivard's Hayshed for the next few weeks and proceeded to drink heavily. After recovering from his Hayshed bender, McCurdy made the 11-mile trek west to Ocasio. There, he gathered up a pair of gentlemen for yet another train robbery. This one had the potential to set them all up for life McCurdy was given information that a Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad Company train would be passing through shortly. On that train was supposedly $400,000 cash that was meant to be given to the Osage Nation Native Americans as a royalty payment. On October 4, 1911, Elmer McCurdy and his gang stopped a train. The wrong train. The men stopped a passenger train by accident. When all was said and done, the $400,000 became 46 bucks, which they stole from the mail clerk. They were also able to snag two jugs of whiskey, an automatic revolver, a coat, and the train conductor's watch. McCurdy, now 0 for 3, was feeling bummed out and headed back to Rivard's ranch on October 6th. He dove into the stolen whiskey and partied with some ranch hands through the night. Side note, at the time, he was now sick with tuberculosis, a mild case of pneumonia, and trichinosis. I had to look trichinosis up. It's basically roundworms. You can get it from eating spoiled meat or undercooked meat. It gives you the hot snakes. Elmer passed out in the hayloft, sweetly dreaming of too much nitroglycerin and a time perhaps when he could carry out a proper robbery. Little did he know that he had been implicated in the robbery and already had a $2,000 bounty on his head. As the sun came up on October 7th, three sheriffs brothers bob and stringer fenton and dick wallace along with a pack of bloodhounds approached the hayshed and took their positions around 7 a.m mccurdy began firing at the sheriffs they exchanged shots for nearly an hour by 8 a.m elmer j mccurdy was dead it's said that a bullet from stringer fenton's luger automatic pistol passed through mccurdy's right chest and lodged in his left pelvis He'd also been nicked in the neck by a pellet from Dick Wallace's shotgun. So that's the sad tale of Elmer McCurdy, part-time plumber, part-time outlaw, full-time drunk. Wait a minute. There's more, much more. This is just halftime. The Fenton brothers transported McCurdy's body to a funeral home owned by Joseph Johnson in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Johnson got to work on embalming McCurdy, using an arsenic-based preservative which was typical during that time, especially when the deceased's next of kin were unknown. The arsenic helped preserve the features of the body for a longer period. At first, Johnson stored McCurdy's body in a back room, but when it became apparent that no one was coming for him, He grew frustrated that he hadn't been paid for his work and hatched a plan to recoup his money. At some point over the nearly five years that the embalmed body was in his possession, he propped McCurdy up in a coffin and charged curious folks a nickel to see what he had marketed as the bandit who wouldn't give up. In order to see the attraction, people would drop their nickels into McCurdy's open mouth. At the end of the day, Johnson would retrieve the money, It became a profitable side business for him. As word spread, carnival promoters from all over the country offered to purchase McCurdy. But Johnson wasn't about to give up his moneymaker. In October of 1916, however, two men claiming to be McCurdy's brothers from California arrived at the funeral home. The brothers, Aver and Wayne, had apparently already contacted the county sheriff, as well as a local attorney, to get permission to take custody of the body. It was, after all, their mother's dying wish to give her son Elmer a proper burial. Johnson reluctantly released the body to the men who then put it on a train. They told people that it would be shipped to San Francisco. It was instead shipped to Arkansas City, Kansas, and McCurdy's long-lost brothers turned out to be James and Charles Patterson, owners of the Great Patterson Carnival Shows a traveling carnival. The Pattersons featured the corpse in their show as the outlaw who would never be captured alive. I found a May 3rd, 1918 article in the Daily Gate City and Constitution Democrat about the Great Patterson Carnival Show. It was apparently making a stop in a small town in Iowa and the paper had nothing but glowing things to say. Patterson shows coming to Keokuk. The first tented amusement organization of the season to visit Keokuk will be the Great Patterson Shows, which will open here Monday night, May 13th, and give performances afternoon and night for the balance of the week. The Great Patterson shows enjoy a reputation that they may feel very justly proud of, not only as regards to the high class of attractions presented, but from the fact that on the midway of the Great Patterson shows, Not anything degrading or of an immoral nature is ever tolerated, so that the head of the house may take the entire family into any of the attractions without any hesitancy or fear that something would be said or done that might offend. That the public can and will support clean, wholesome entertainment is proven conclusively by the unprecedented success of this great carnival organization. The article goes on to mention adorable Shetland ponies and trained elephants, but fails to shine a spotlight on Elmer McCurdy's dead body that the owners of the traveling carnival conned their way into acquiring. They zigzagged across the country with McCurdy in tow, using him for their benefit for nearly six years. It seems that Elmer was every bit the drifter in death as he was in his 31 years alive. In 1922, Louis Sunny who was the head of an entertainment company in California, acquired Elmer after a Carney used the body as collateral for a $500 loan. After never receiving payment for the loan, Sonny added the increasingly mummified body to his traveling museum of crime, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws like Jesse James. In 1933, Sonny loaned the body to an exploitation film director named Dwayne Esper. Esper wanted to use the body to promote his film entitled Narcotic. McCurdy was then placed in the lobby of movie theaters as an example of a dead dope fiend. At this point, 22 years after his death, McCurdy's body had become hard, shriveled, and shrunken. Esper used that to further bolster his messages regarding drugs and their effect on the human body. It wouldn't be Elmer's last brush with Hollywood. McCurdy stayed with Louis Sonny until he died in 1949. Dan Sonny, Louis's son, then placed the body in storage inside of a Los Angeles warehouse. In 1964, McCurdy was lent to Dan Sonny's friend and filmmaker David F. Friedman. Mr. Friedman was a big deal in the low-budget, shock-and-awe world of B-movies, producing such films as Blood Feast, Scum of the Earth, and Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. Eventually, Friedman used the borrowed body during a scene in the 1967 classic She-Freak. In the name of research i watched as much of the movie as i could handle about 45 minutes into she freak is when i realized that mccurdy's scene had been removed in more recent versions the following year dan sunny sold a collection of wax figures including the very real body of mccurdy for ten thousand dollars to a gentleman named Spoonie Singh Singh, who at the time was the owner of the hollywood wax museum bought the figures for a pair of canadian men who wanted to enhance their show at Mount Rushmore. While McCurdy was on display there, his body sustained damage during a windstorm. He lost the tips of his ears, along with various fingers and toes. They then returned the body back to Singh, who determined it looked too gruesome to display. You think? In 1976, now 65 years after McCurdy's death, Singh sold the body to the owner of a Long Beach, California amusement park called The Pike or New Pike, as it was known by then. They painted McCurdy with a red phosphorescent paint and hung him from the gallows to scare folks in the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse ride. In December of that same year, the $6 million man began filming an episode at the New Pike Amusement Park, entitled The Carnival of Spies. For a scene being shot inside the Laugh in the Dark ride, a crew member was asked to take down the hanging body, as it didn't look right in the shot the dutiful crew member went to move what he assumed to be a mannequin when suddenly one of the arms broke off in his hands revealing bone and tissue crew members gathered around and decided that the prop was indeed the remains of a human male police were quickly called and mccurdy's body was taken to the los angeles coroner's office on december 9th of nineteen seventy six los angeles's chief medical examiner dr joseph choi conducted an autopsy and determined that the body was that of a human male who had died of a gunshot wound to the chest dr choi would oversee cases involving the hillside strangler william holden and natalie wood but this would go down as his most bizarre the body by now was completely petrified covered in wax and had been covered with layers of red phosphorescent paint It weighed approximately 50 pounds, even with the extra layers of coating. His examination revealed incisions from the original autopsy and embalming. A number of clues aided in the ability to at least narrow down the timeline of when the man before them had died. Tests on the tissue revealed large amounts of arsenic, which was, again, common with embalming in the 1920s. He was able to find traces of tuberculosis. The bullet that killed him was removed in the original autopsy, but the bullet jacket remained. The type of jacket found was originally used in the early 1900s upon removing the lower jaw for dental analysis even more clues were found inside the mouth dr choy found a 1924 penny and ticket stubs to lewis sunny's museum of crime investigators learned that sunny was deceased but managed to contact dan sunny who confirmed that the body was elmer mccurdy a forensic anthropologist was called in for further verification Dr. Clyde Snow took radiographs of the skull and placed them over a photo of McCurdy. It matched perfectly. Within a couple of days, McCurdy's story was all over newspapers, television, and radio. Various funeral homes called the coroner's office, offering to bury McCurdy for free, but ultimately, Fred Olds, the Oklahoma Territorial Museum director, convinced the county of Los Angeles to allow him to bury the body in Oklahoma. In February of 1977, the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma, offered the city council a burial plot in what is known as the Boot Hill section of the cemetery grounds. Elmer McCurdy would finally be properly buried near other infamous Oklahoma outlaws. Two months later, there was a big to-do at Summit View, with reporters and curious onlookers dressed in clothing from McCurdy's era. A horse-drawn hearse delivered the plain pine coffin to Boot Hill, and a full service was offered. After the service, a cement mixer was brought in, and they covered his coffin in a couple of feet of cement. A little extra insurance that his remains stay in one place this time. I found an interesting tidbit for any comic book fans out there. In the late 1970s, DC Comics introduced a new character named Jonah Hex. His origin story is a complex 1800s story about tribes of Native Americans and betrayal, but ultimately Jonah Hex becomes an outlaw bounty hunter. The story of his death has him continuing his role of bounty hunter until around the age of 66. It's the year 1904. He's now married to a Native American woman named Tallbird. According to DCFandom.com, the entertainer L.B. Farnham approaches him to become part of a Wild West review show in his old age. But Hex angrily refuses to let them turn him into a sideshow. Hex's last bounty was a gang run by bank robber George Barrow. He succeeded in wiping them out but Barrow returned for revenge several days later, killing him with his double-barreled shotgun. Tallbird attempts to give Jonah a nice, proper Native American burial, but they are robbed at gunpoint by Farnham and an accomplice. Farnham leaves Hex's widow unconscious to die in a house fire while he steals Hex's corpse for the Wild West review. Jonah Hex is taxidermied to be put on display permanently in a gaudy outfit, and his body is transported from location to location. His final resting place is as a dummy at a Westworld theme park. Eventually, he is discovered by historians, but Tallbird is revealed to have survived the fire and she claims his body. She does an interview with a young scholar to fill in the missing details in her husband's life, but they are assaulted by a Western memorabilia collector who demands to have the corpse at any cost. The evil collector is shot in the back before he can murder them, and it's implied that Jonah Hex's vengeful spirit returned to protect his wife from beyond the grave. A lot of that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Rumor has it that they may build a new amusement park on the grounds of the Old Pike in California. Maybe Elmer will haunt that place and get some revenge. After deciding to share this unbelievable and interesting story, I really started feeling bad for the guy. He had a tough upbringing, a miserable adulthood, and then had his remains shuffled around the country as a cheap carnival attraction for six decades. A big question I have after all of this is, at what point when he was being bought and sold and stored and displayed did people stop being aware that it was once a living person? We know Joseph Johnson knew. He did the original autopsy. We know the Patterson brothers knew. They pretended to be kin to obtain him. Lewis and Dan Sonny both knew because the Carney, who they'd got the body from told them and Dan even later confirmed it when the investigators from Los Angeles called him. Did the directors Duane Esper or David F. Friedman know? When they used him to sell movie tickets or gave him a role in a movie? How about Spoonie Singh or his Canadian buddies that broke him near Mount Rushmore, the owner of the pike, as he spray-painted him and left him to dangle from the rafters for young couples on dates to scream at? People paid money to get a glimpse of the supposed mummified cowboy. I get that. Some folks are attracted to the gruesome, to the macabre, and the unbelievable. I'd wager that many of them went home thinking it was fake, however. Little did they know that it once was a man. A drunk, fatherless, comically bad outlaw of a man, but a man nonetheless. And whatever kind of a man he was in life, at what point in those 66 years had he paid for his crimes and earned the chance to be buried peacefully? Now don't get me wrong, this isn't an attempt at being self-righteous. We've all done things in life to get ahead or that we weren't proud of. Anyone running a carnival or a roadside attraction is probably willing to do whatever it takes to make a buck, especially back then. You can safely put me in the column of, when someone passes, bury them or cremate them or push them out to sea and light them on fire, Viking style, which by the way is how I want to go. I'm undecided on how I feel about pumping a body full of chemicals every two years and preserving them in a glass case for people to gawk at for decades. I can pay my respects to Abraham Lincoln without having to look at his corpse. But I'm not Russian, or North Korean, or Venezuelan, so I'm careful not to judge. And in all honesty, if they wheeled Lincoln's body into the Henry Ford Museum, I'd probably have to go, at least once." In the name of science and research of course truthfully as you've no doubt gathered in these 12 episodes so far i am one of the people interested in the macabre and the bizarre it's how google led me to this story after all But at some point in this journey of research, I went from thinking it was a hilarious, creepy, fun story to just feeling sad for Elmer, and even sadder for the people that knowingly profited off of a dead body. It's good, I guess, to still feel a bit of humanity in this crazy world we live in now. It's also good to know I can cross Grave Robber off of my list of possible career choices. Let me know your thoughts. Email me, curator135 at gmail.com. Send me a message through my website, curator135.com, or find me on almost all of the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now, thanks to my kids, TikTok. Just search Curator135. Thank you for listening. If you wouldn't mind, leave a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using right now. It really helps. Until next time, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you.